You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, if you, you're going to need your Bibles, and you can go to the Version app if you'd like. But let's do a little Bible study this morning. If you're online with us, grab your Bible. Uh, now would be a good time, even right here at the beginning, to maybe make sure that you have the bread and the wine for the Eucharist. Um, but let's go ahead and let's talk about Epiphany. And I, again, I want you to follow along, if you will, because I want to think about the implications of Epiphany and what it means for us. So before we do that, I want to let you know that starting next week, we're going to get into this new series and this conversation, and we're going to talk about the gift of difference and the grace of unity. We're going to talk about how a church filled with differences, differences of all kinds, differences that we can see, differences that we can't see, can still find in the life of the Spirit what it means to be unified. A lot of people talk about unity. Right now in this country, everybody's talking about unity, unity, unity. Biblically speaking, unity is not something we work for. Unity is something that happens when we're faithful to other commitments. Unity is an outcome. That's why it says that the unity of the spirit of peace, the spirit produces unity in the people of God when the people of God are organized around a way of life together that makes unity possible even in the midst of differences. And what I want to propose over the next several weeks is how it's exactly our differences that create the possibilities of a unity that reflects the kingdom of God. So that's going to be the next several weeks. But today, it is Luke chapter 4. Now, before Christmas, in the gospel story, It seemed the reign of sin and death would have no end. But now an end is in view. A boundary line has been drawn, and all of humanity can cross into this new creation, this new beginning that Christ the King makes possible in the reign of grace. In our text today, in Luke chapter 4, the Christ child's all grown up. After years of study and preparation, Jesus comes to the synagogue, a baptized man. He takes the scroll, opens it to the words of Isaiah chapter 61, and like a man inspired by the Spirit, begins with these words in Luke 4. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives or for the trapped and recovery of sight for the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's happening here is Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 and in doing so what Jesus is doing is drawing on a larger story of Isaiah and elsewhere, that God is fulfilling the promises that out of Israel will come this light into the nation. So what I'd like to do is step back to Isaiah 61. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 61. Here's what's happening. In Isaiah, after warning God's people that exile is coming, exile meaning they're going to be dispersed, spread out all over the world. They're not going to have their own way of life. It's not going to be secure. The temple, everything's going to be different. They're going to feel scattered and displaced. That after this exile that is coming, he begins to speak of this hope. 
And this hope that Isaiah is speaking of is of this anointed Messiah, this king. This one is going to be what he would call a suffering servant. And it's through his suffering that God is going to work out redemption and restoration. It's through his suffering that God is going to work out release and freedom for those who are in bondage. We know him, this suffering servant, this anointed one as the Christ. But it's important to remember they didn't know that. They had no idea. They're just a people of exile. They're familiar with it. And when we are a people in exile, we are lost. Identity and way of life is uncertain. I feel scattered. No thing should be different, but it is what it is. And the promise of Isaiah is that God's not going to leave God's people displaced from all they know forever. God will return them to their inheritance He will return them to their land. And so the prophet stands among them. And like a man inspired by the Spirit, the prophet says in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring or announce good news, which is gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim loudly liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of despair that they may be called oaks of righteousness or oaks of justice, the planting by the Lord to glorify him. Listen to this, verse 4. They will rebuild. Everybody say rebuild. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore. Everybody say restore. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew. Everybody say renew. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will become your plowmen and vine dressers. And it goes on in this beautiful story of restoration and liberation and hope. And what we find in this story of Isaiah, that Isaiah is no longer the one speaking here. The Lord Jesus is speaking. Long before Christmas, God spoke to his people. And the Lord is speaking hope to those who feel powerless Weak, vulnerable, and needy. By needy, by needy, I mean those in need of healing, in need of bandages for their wounds. The Lord speaks liberation to those who feel trapped or captive, oppressed, low on hope, tired, uncertain of the future. The Lord's intention is to offer good news and a promise. There is a certain hope and a certain future even in the midst of their uncertain times. There is what we're going to call this morning a growing edge. Everybody say growing edge. There's a growing edge that will come. This growing edge is a moment in time, Isaiah says, when the reign of sin and death and all its ways ends and new life begins. You hear about this growing edge and the promise of a new age to come in verse 2 when he says that the Lord will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, it is interesting to notice, if you compare Isaiah 61 to Luke 4, Jesus holds out. He doesn't talk about the vengeance of the Lord in Luke 4. He lands his plane at the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that has implications. What he's talking about in this whole, the year of the Lord's favor, stay with me, is this Hebrew understanding of something called jubilee. Everybody say jubilee. This is important, jubilee. The year of jubilee. If you have your Bibles, Leviticus. I know you might not have. Okay, Leviticus is in the first five books. People are like, Levita what? Leviticus, everybody's favorite book to read during the yearly Bible reading. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 25. Beginning verse 8. The word of the Lord. In addition, you must count off seven Sabbath years. Seven years times seven, adding up to 49 years in all. Then on the day of atonement of the 50th year, blow the trumpets loud and long throughout the land. This year will be set apart as holy, a time to proclaim release for all who live there. It will be jubilee year for you. When each of you returns to the lands that belong to your ancestors and rejoins your clan. Yes, the 50th year will be a jubilee for you. During that year, do not plant any seeds or store away any crops that grow naturally. And do not process the grapes that grow on your unpruned vines. It will be jubilee year for you. And you must observe it as a special and holy time. You may, however, eat the produce that grows naturally in the fields that year. In the year of jubilee... Each of you must return to the lands that belong to your ancestors. When you make an agreement with a neighbor to buy or sell property, you must never take advantage of each neighbor. And if you read the rest of the text, here's what you find. In the year of Jubilee, in all of Israel's society, all debts are forgiven. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Jubilee was meant to close the gap between the haves and the have-nots. The rich and the poor. It was to push back against the possibility of a permanent underclass. All slaves would be released and set free. The buying and selling of real estate was going to be prorated from Jubilee. And everyone goes back to their original plot of land given to their family when the Israelites entered Canaan. It is a societal reset button. And in this text, it's as if every 50 years, God is saying, you've been given a new inheritance, a fresh start. It's as if God is saying, you have been liberated. It's as if God is saying, you have been restored. That's the year of Jubilee. That's the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee was the way that God would level the playing field. It was God's leveling agent of love, mercy, justice, and hope. It was God's tangible work of making possible liberation, restoration, and newness. It was the growing edge where debts meet forgiveness, where poverty meets possibility, where inequality meets equality, where exclusion meets inclusion, where brokenness meets restoration. In the year of Jubilee, new life was to begin, but it would cost. It would cost the generations who'd experienced success over the past 50 years. They would have to detach from what they had come to own. And then they would have to trust the Lord and become satisfied with having enough. 
Wouldn't that be nice? Well, for some of us it might. For some of us it might not be nice. Sadly, as far as we know, to no surprise to us, perhaps, the year of Jubilee was never practiced. I mean, I could almost imagine the elders coming together in Israel. Hey, yo, like it's, um, we're like 49 years in. I was reading Leviticus the other day, and, you know, Yahweh said we need to reset this thing. What y'all think? I think, we, I think we're good. I think we'll wait another 50. The time isn't right. They shouldn't have made those bad business deals that caused them to lose their land. They should work harder. The great leveling agent wasn't ever embraced. The great leveling agent that God instituted that made debt forgiveness, abundance, shared wealth, equality, inclusion, restoration, all these things possible, was never practiced. The rich got richer. The poor got poorer. Those who were in bondage to debt and displacement were never released. This fresh start this restoration that God had promised the people never took place. And that's sad because Jubilee has a deeper meaning than even those important things. See, in the year of Jubilee, y'all, stay with me. In the year of Jubilee, God was offering a foretaste of what was to be experienced at the arrival of the kingdom of God. In the year of Jubilee, That was the sign that the growing edge had indeed come. That there was a new and everlasting kingdom that would welcome anyone into God's abundance and restoration, regardless of the reasons for which they had become powerless or poor, wounded, trapped, or in bondage. Anyone could have a fresh start. Jubilee was a signpost to a bigger reality that was going to come. It was a sign of the growing edge that everything will one day return to God's desire. That the vision of God will come to fruition. That one day all the wrongs of the world would be made right. It was a sign of the growing edge that new possibilities were breaking in. And that rebuilding and renewing the rejected and the ruined was actually possible. So God, through Isaiah, is trying to let the people know that this certain hope and certain future is one of redemption and restoration. Jubilee was the sign of the growing edge where the old ends and the new could begin. So now you fast forward 500 years and we get back to Jesus in the synagogue. And Jesus comes to the synagogue, a spirit-filled, baptized man. He takes the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he says that he has been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor and sent to proclaim liberty for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, known as Jubilee. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, today, everybody say today. Today, Jesus says, this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. You know what it means? That in Jesus' first sermon, Jesus offers not only a vision of his ministry, but the promise that a new age has begun. A new age. 
A new world has begun. It's been fulfilled. There's a new way now of doing things in society for all those who will hear Jesus. There's a new way of understanding how society should work. Every aspect of our life should be rethought in light of what Jesus says has been fulfilled. And if I am living in any way that works against the vision of Jesus, I need to repent and see again. So here, here, here's, here's where we are, I think. So like in our heads, we know that God's grace is for everyone because we trust that God's kingdom is breaking into our world through the reign of Jesus. We know that the poor, the trapped, the blind, and the oppressed all are welcome to the most gracious hope. We know that. We know that there's a place for all of us in God's life. But do we remember that the Lord's Jubilee has finally come and the ground is being, everybody say being, being leveled as powers are being restructured in light of this new age called the kingdom of God, which means we have to let go of trying to keep the ground uneven. We have to let go of trying to keep the powers from being restructured. A new world and a new beginning is broken in. It's a new creation, and we are to join God in that work because it is a work that will come to fruition one way or the other. You with me? That's the promise of God. Jesus' first sermon is an inspired message from an inspired man with a prophetic imagination. And for us, looking back to the Luke 4 text, leads us to Isaiah 61 that becomes a mandate then for the church. Isaiah 61 is the theology of the church. And it tells us that God has always been working on the growing edge. And God needs his people to move out to the growing edge. See, there was a time when it felt the reign of sin and death had no end. But now the end of the reign of sin and death has come. We still feel it. We feel it in COVID. We feel it in poverty. We feel it in injustice. We feel it in violence. We feel it in, in bullets and bombs and other diseases. We still feel it in our bank accounts. We feel it in our relationships. But the promise of God in Christ is that the end of the reign of sin and death has come. And there is a growing edge. The boundary line has been set. And all of humanity can cross over into this new creation. A new beginning and a fresh start is always possible because Christ is king. And we're all invited. And here's the thing. We're all invited to keep our eyes at the growing edge. At the growing edge. When the reign of sin and death is coming to an end. Not in the middle where we feel like we're immersed by the reign of sin and death. But at the growing edge. See, the language of the growing edge actually isn't my language. It's Howard Thurman's language. See, Howard Thurman wrote this poem in reflection of the Christmas story, and this is what he wrote. All around us, worlds are dying, and new worlds are being born. All around us, life is dying, and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree. The roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against the time when there shall be new leaves, fresh blossoms, green fruits. Such is the growing edge. It is the extra breath from the exhausted lung, the one more thing to try when all else has failed. 
the upward reach of life when weariness closes in upon all endeavor. This is basis of hope in moments of despair. The incentive to carry on when times are out of joint. All men have lost their reason, the source of confidence. When worlds crash and dreams widen into ash, the birth of a child, life's most dramatic answer to death. This is the growing edge incarnate. Look well to the growing edge. Whew. So how do we look to the growing edge, beloved? We remember the Christmas story and how it is on the edges of society that the gospel came to us. As Pastor Carlos Rodriguez reminds us, it's an unwed woman who carries God. It's the pagans from the east who recognize God. It's the workers in the field who hear from God. It's the marginalized neighborhood who welcomes God. It's God who chooses the lowly and the broken to rise. Beloved, these were not people of the centers of power. These were the people on the edges. See, it's the edges of society that Isaiah calls out and Jesus mentions. It's the edge because that is where Jesus can be found. It is the edge because that is where those who are cut off from the centers of power and influence are found. It is where we find those who are truly marginalized and vulnerable. It's where we find those who are in need of healing and need bandages for their wounds. It's where we find those who are truly trapped and oppressed. It is where we find those who feel low on hope, tired, uncertain of their future. It's the growing edge. Because that, in the growing edge... Is where the liberating reality of Jubilee will most be tangibly felt. Most tangibly felt. One of the things I've always known that the scriptures has taught is that if God can't be found anywhere in my life, God can always be found in the brokenhearted. That's what the scriptures promise. If I can't find God, I need to go to the brokenhearted. I need to go to the edge. The growing edge is found in the grief of a loved one who mourns their beloved. It's the single mother who feels trapped in her circumstances or the single father who doesn't fit the typical single parent categories and feels misunderstood. It's in the child who feels unknown and unseen. It's in the teenager whose parents force them to leave home because they do not identify with their assigned gender or sexuality. It's in the neighborhood that feels caught in a cycle of weekend violence. The growing edge is found in the winter shelter in the longer local hotel. It's, it's in the group home housing neighbors living differently abled lives. It's in the nursing homes where senior neighbors are living out their last years. It's in the substance use facilities or neighbors who fight quiet battles with substance use or it's the loved ones who fight for them. It's in the prison systems and those stepping out of incarceration hoping to begin again. The growing edge is found in the person, man, woman, or child who lives with a secret they are too afraid to tell. The growing edge is in the school system caught in education inequities. It's in the minimum wage worker who can't afford the rent with the job they have and can't afford to take the time off to look for a better one. The growing edge is where death is met with life. The growing edge is where suffocating poverty is met with liberating generosity. 
It's where exclusion is met with inclusion. The growing edge is where judgmentalism and presumption is met with understanding and empathy. It's where condemnation is met with compassion and malice is met with mercy. The growing edge is where the hospitality of the God carried in the belly of an unwed woman met by pagans from the east, heard by the workers in the field and welcomed by the marginalized few of Jewish society, dominated by Roman Empire, is extended to those that society dismisses, demeans, dehumanizes, and displaces or demands of them something they lack resources to give. This is the growing edge, beloved, because this is where Christ is found. This is the place where the reign of sin and death most obviously intersects with the reign of grace. But only if the people who celebrate Christmas are committed to bearing witness to the Christ of Christmas once Christmas is over. Love at the growing edge is where God found you. The growing edge is where we are all transformed together in solidarity with those who struggle for dignity, worth, and empowerment. The growing edge is where we will all be transformed. Not in the centers of our comfort, or our convenience. But in the growing edge that reveals the words of Jesus who said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, has sent me to proclaim liberty for those feeling trapped and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim to all peoples, that new possibilities, a fresh start, redemption, restoration, liberation, hope has come. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 